Dead Souls, Part One, Chapter Eleven, Section One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, translated by D. J. Hogarth. Part One, Chapter Eleven, Section One, read by Anna Simon. Nevertheless, events did not turn out as Chichikov had intended they should. In the first place, he overslept himself. That was check number one. In the second place, on his rising and inquiring whether the britchka had been harnessed and everything got ready, he was informed that neither of those two things had been done. That was check number two. Beside himself with rage, he prepared to give Selifan the wigging of his life, and, meanwhile, waited impatiently to hear what the delinquent had got to say in his defence. It goes without saying that when Selifan made his appearance in the doorway, he had only the usual excuses to offer, the sort of excuses usually offered by servants when a hasty departure has become imperatively necessary. "'Paul Ivanovitch,' he said, "'the horses require shoeing.' "'Blockhead!' exclaimed Chichikov. "'Why did you not tell me of that before, you damn fool? Was there not time enough for them to be shod?' "'Yes, I suppose there was,' agreed Selifan. Also, one of the wheels is in want of a new tyre, for the roads are so rough that the old tyre is worn through. Also, the body of the britchka is so rickety that probably it will not last more than a couple of stages. "'Rascal!' shouted Chichikov, clenching his fists and approaching Selifan in such a manner that, fearing to receive a blow, the man backed and dodged aside. "'Do you mean to ruin me, and to break all our bones on the road, you cursed idiot?' For these three weeks past you've been doing nothing at all, yet now, at the last moment, you come here stammering and playing the fool. Do you think I keep you just to eat and to drive yourself about? You must have known of this before. Did you or did you not know it? Answer me at once. Yes, I did know it, replied Selifan, hanging his head. Then why didn't you tell me about it? Selifan had no reply immediately ready so continued to hang his head while quietly saying to himself, "'See how well I have managed things. I knew what was the matter, yet I did not say.' "'And now,' continued Chichikov, "'go you at once and fetch a blacksmith. Tell him that everything must be put right within two hours at the most. Do you hear? If that should not be done, I—I—I I, I will give you the best flogging that ever you had in your life.' Truly Chichikov was almost beside himself with fury. Turning towards the door, as though for the purpose of going and carrying out his orders, Selifan halted and added, "'That skewbald baron, you might think it well to sell him, seeing that he's nothing but a rascal. A horse like that is more of a hindrance than a help.' "'What? Do you expect me to go now to the marketplace and sell him?' "'Well, Paul Ivanovitch, he's good for nothing but show, since by nature he's a most cunning beast. Never in my life have I seen such a horse.' "'Fool!' Whenever I may wish to sell him, I shall sell him. Meanwhile, don't you trouble your head about what doesn't concern you, but go and fetch a blacksmith, and see that everything is put right within two hours. Otherwise, I'll take the very hair of your head, and beat you till you haven't a face left. Be off! Hurry! Selifan departed, and Chichikov, his ill-humour vented, threw down upon the floor the poignard which he always took with him as a means of instilling respect into whomsoever it might concern, and spent the next quarter of an hour in disputing with a couple of blacksmiths, 
men who, as usual, are rascals of the type which, on perceiving that something is wanted in a hurry, at once multiplies its terms for providing the same. Indeed, for all Chichikov's storming and raging, as he dubbed the fellows robbers and extortioners and thieves, he could make no impression upon the pair, since, true to their character, they declined to abate their prices, and, even when they had begun their work, spent upon it not two hours, but five and a half. Meanwhile, he had the satisfaction of experiencing that delightful time with which all travellers are familiar, namely, the time during which one sits in a room where, except for a litter of string, waste paper and so forth, everything else has been packed. But to all things there comes an end, and there arrived also the long-awaited moment when the britchka had received the luggage, the faulty wheel had been fitted with a new tyre, the horses had been reshot, and the predatory blacksmiths had departed with their gains. "'Thank God!' thought Chichikov, as the britchka rolled out of the gates of the inn, and the vehicle began to jolt over the cobblestones. Yet a feeling which he could not altogether have defined filled his breast as he gazed upon the houses and the streets and the garden walls which he might never see again. Presently, on turning a corner, the britchka was brought to a halt through the fact that along the street there was filing a seemingly endless funeral procession. Leaning forward in his britchka, Chichikov asked Petrushka, whose obsequies the procession represented, and was told that they represented those of the public prosecutor. Disagreeably shocked, our hero hastened to raise the hood of the vehicle, to draw the curtains across the windows, and to lean back into a corner. While the britchka remained thus halted, Selifan and Petrushka, their caps doffed, sat watching the progress of the cortege, after they had received strict instructions not to greet any fellow-servant whom they might recognize. Behind the hearse walked the whole body of Chinovniks, bareheaded, and though for a moment or two Chichikov feared that some of their number might discern him in his britchka, he need not have disturbed himself, since their attention was otherwise engaged. In fact, they were not even exchanging the small talk customary among members of such processions, but thinking exclusively of their own affairs, of the advent of the new governor-general, and of the probable manner in which he would take up the reins of administration. Next came a number of carriages, from the windows of which peered the ladies in morning toilets. Yet the movements of their hands and lips made it evident that they were indulging in animated conversation, probably about the governor-general, the balls which he might be expected to give, and their own eternal fripperies and gewgaws. Lastly came a few empty droskis. As soon as the latter had passed, our hero was able to continue on his way. Throwing back the hood of the britchka, he said to himself, Ah, good friend, you have lived your life, and now it is over. In the newspapers they will say of you that you died regretted not only by your subordinates, but also by humanity at large, as well as that a respected citizen, a kind father, and a husband beyond reproach, you went to your grave amid the tears of your widow and orphans. Yet should those journals be put to it to name any particular circumstance which justified this eulogy of you, they would be forced to fall back upon the fact that you grew a pair of exceptionally thick eyebrows. With that, Chichikov bid Selifan quicken his pace, and concluded, After all, it is as well that I encounter the procession, for they say that to meet a funeral is lucky. Presently the britchka turned into some less frequented streets. Lines of wooden fencing, of the kind which marked the outskirts of a town, began to file by. The cobblestones came to an end. The macadam of the high road succeeded to them, and once more there began on either side of the turnpike a procession of verse stones, road-menders, and grey villages. 
inns with samovars and peasant women and landlords who came running out of yards with sea-fulls of oats, pedestrians in worn shoes which, it might be, had covered eight hundred versts, little towns bright with boots for the sale of flour and barrels, boots, small loaves and other trifles, heaps of slag, much repaired bridges, expanses of field to right and to left, stout landowners, a mounted soldier bearing a green, iron-clamped box inscribed, the ex-battery of artillery, long strips of freshly tilled earth which gleamed green, yellow, and black on the face of the countryside. With it mingled long-drawn singing, glimpses of elm-tops amid mist, the far-off notes of bells, endless clouds of rocks, and the illimitable line of the horizon. Ah, Russia, Russia, from my beautiful home in a strange land I can still see you. In you everything is poor and disordered and unhomely. In you the eye is neither cheered nor dismayed by temerities of nature which a yet more temerarious art has conquered. In you one beholds no cities with lofty many-windowed mansions, lofty as crags, no picturesque trees, no ivy-clad ruins, no waterfalls with their everlasting spray and roar, no beetling precipices which confuse the brain with their stony immensity no vistas of vines and ivy and millions of wild roses and ageless lines of blue hills which look almost unreal against the clear silvery background of the sky in you everything is flat and open your towns project like points or signals from smooth levels of plain and nothing whatsoever enchants or deludes the eye yet what secret what invincible force draws me to you why does there ceaselessly echo and re-echo in my ears the sad song which hovers throughout the length and the breadth of your borders? What is the burden of that song? Why does it wail and sob and catch at my heart? What say the notes which thus painfully caress and embrace my soul, and flit, uttering their lamentations, around me? What is it you seek of me, O Russia? What is the hidden bond which subsists between us? Why do you regard me as you do? Why does everything within you turn upon me, eyes full of yearning? Even at this moment, as I stand dumbly, fixedly, perplexedly, contemplating your vastness, a menacing cloud, charged with gathering rain, seems to overshadow my head. What is it that your boundless expanses presage? Do they not presage that one day there will arise in you ideas as boundless as yourself? Do they not presage that one day you too will know no limits? Do they not presage that one day, when again you shall have room for their exploits, there will spring to life the heroes of old? How the power of your immensity enfolds me, and reverberates through all my being with a wild, strange spell, and flashes in my eyes with an almost supernatural radiance! Yes, a strange, brilliant, unearthly vista indeed do you disclose, O Russia! country of mine. "'Stop! Stop, you fool!' shouted Chichikov to Selifan, and even as he spoke a troika, bound on government business, came chattering by and disappeared in a cloud of dust. To Chichikov's curses at Selifan for not having drawn out of the way with more alacrity, a rural constable with moustaches of the length of an arshin added his quota. What a curious and attractive, yet also what an unreal fascination the term highway connotes! and how interesting for its own sake is a highway. Should the day be a fine one, though chilly, in mellowing autumn, 
press closer your travelling cloak and draw down your cap over your ears and snuggle cosily comfortably into a corner of the britchka before a last shiver shall course through your limbs and the ensuing warmth shall put to flight the autumnal cold and damp as the horses gallop on their way how delightfully will drowsiness come stealing upon you and make your eyelids droop for a while through your somnolence you will continue to hear the hard breathing of the team and the rumbling of the wheels but at length sinking back into your corner you will relapse into the stage of snoring and when you awake behold you will find that five stages have slipped away and that the moon is shining and that you have reached a strange town of churches and old wooden cupolas and blackened spires and white half-timbered houses and as the moonlight glints hither and thither almost you will believe that the walls and the streets and the pavements of the place are spread with sheets sheets shot with coal-black shadows which make the wooden roofs look all the brighter under the slanting beams of the pale luminary nowhere is a soul to be seen for every one is plunged in slumber yet no in a solitary window a light is flickering where some good burgher is mending his boots or a baker drawing a batch of dough oh night and powers of heaven how perfect is the blackness of your infinite vault how lofty how remote its inaccessible depths where it lies spread in an intangible yet audible silence freshly does the lulling breath of night blow in your face until once more you relapse into snoring oblivion and your poor neighbour turns angrily in his corner as he begins to be conscious of your weight then again you awake but this time to find yourself confronted with only fields and steps everywhere in the ascendant is the desolation of space but suddenly the ciphers on a versed stone leap to the eye morning is rising and on the chill gradually paling line of the horizon you can see gleaming a faint gold streak the wind freshens and grows keener and you snuggle closer in your cloak yet how glorious is that freshness and how marvellous the sleep in which once again you become enfolded a jolt and for the last time you return to consciousness by now the sun is high in the heavens and you hear a voice cry gently gently as a farm wagon issues from a by-road below enclosed within an ample dyke stretches a sheet of water which glistens like copper in the sunlight beyond on the side of a slope lie some scattered peasants huts a manor house and flanking the latter a village church with its cross flashing like a star there also comes wafted to your ear the sound of peasants laughter while in your inner man you are becoming conscious of an appetite which is not to be withstood oh long-drawn highway how excellent you are how often have i in weariness and despondency set forth upon your length and found in you salvation and rest how often as i followed your leading have i been visited with wonderful thoughts and poetic dreams and curious wild impressions at this moment our friend chichikov also was experiencing visions of a not wholly prosaic nature let us peep into his soul and share them at first he remained unconscious of anything whatsoever for he was too much engaged in making sure that he was really clear of the town but as soon as he saw that it had completely disappeared with its mills and factories and other urban appurtenances and that even the steeples of the white stone churches had sunk below the horizon he turned his attention to the road and the town of n vanished from his thoughts as completely as though he had not seen it since childhood again in its turn the road ceased to interest him and he began to close his eyes and to loll his head against the cushions 
of this let the author take advantage in order to speak at length concerning his hero since hitherto he the author has been prevented from so doing by nozdrev and balls and ladies and local intrigues by those thousand trifles which seem trifles only when they are introduced into a book but which in life figure as affairs of importance let us lay them aside and betake ourselves to business whether the character whom i have selected for my hero has pleased my readers is of course exceedingly doubtful at all events the ladies will have failed to approve him for the fair sex demands in a hero perfection and should there be the least mental or physical stain on him well woe betide yes no matter how profoundly the author may probe that hero's soul no matter how clearly he may portray his figure as in a mirror he will be given no credit for the achievement indeed chichikov's very stoutness and plenitude of years may have militated against him for never is a hero pardoned for the former and the majority of ladies will in such a case turn away and mutter to themselves phew what a beast yes the author is well aware of this yet though he could not to save his life take a person of virtue for his principal character it may be that this story contains themes never before selected and that in it there projects the whole boundless wealth of russian psychology that it portrays as well as chichikov the peasant who is gifted with the virtues which god has sent him and the marvellous maiden of russia who has not her like in all the world for her beautiful feminine spirituality the roots of which lie buried in noble aspirations and boundless self-denial in fact compared with these types the virtues of other races seem lifeless as does an inanimate volume when compared with the living word yes each time that there arises in russia a movement of thought it becomes clear that the movement sinks deep into the slavonic nature where it would but have skimmed the surface of other nations but why am i talking like this whither am i tending it is indeed shameful that an author who long ago reached man's estate and was brought up to a cause of severe introspection and sober solitary self-enlightenment should give way to such jejune wandering from the point to everything its proper time and place and turn as i was saying it does not lie in me to take a virtuous character for my hero and i will tell you why it is because it is high time that a rest were given to the poor but virtuous individual it is because the phrase a man of worth has grown into a byword it is because the man of worth has become converted into a horse and there is not a writer but rides him and flogs him in and out of season it is because the man of worth has been starved until he has not a shred of his virtue left and all that remains of his body is but the ribs and the hide it is because the man of worth is for ever being smuggled upon the scene it is because the man of worth has at length forfeited every one's respect for these reasons do i reaffirm that it is high time to yoke a rascal to the shafts let us yoke that rascal our hero's beginnings were both modest and obscure true his parents were dvorian but he in no way resembled them at all events a short squab female relative who was present at his birth exclaimed as she lifted up the baby he's altogether different from what i had expected him to be he ought to have taken after his maternal grandmother whereas he has been born as the proverb has it like not father nor mother but like a chance passer-by thus from the first life regarded the little chichikov with sour distaste and as through a dim frost-encrusted window a tiny room with diminutive casements which were never opened summer or winter 
an invalid father in a dressing-gown lined with lambskin and with an ailing foot swathed in bandages a man who was continually drawing deep breaths and walking up and down the room and spitting into a sandbox a period of perpetually sitting on a bench with pen in hand and ink on lips and fingers a period of being eternally confronted with a copy-book maxim never tell a lie but obey your superiors and cherish virtue in your heart an everlasting scraping and shuffling of slippers up and down the room a period of continually hearing a well-known strident voice exclaim so you've been playing the fool again at times with a child weary of the mortal monotony of his task had added a superfluous embellishment to his copy a period of experiencing the ever-familiar but ever-unpleasant sensation which ensued upon those words as the boy's ear was painfully twisted between two long fingers bent backwards at the tips. Such is the miserable picture of that youth of which, in later life, Chichikov preserved but the faintest of memories. But in this world everything is liable to swift and sudden change, and one day in early spring, when the rivers had melted, the father set forth with his little son in a telyeshka, or four-wheeled open carriage, drawn by a sorrel steed of the kind known to horsey folk as a soroka, and having as coachman the diminutive hunchback who, father of the only serf family belonging to the elder Chichikov, served as general factotum in the Chichikov establishment. For a day and a half the soroka conveyed them on their way, during which time they spent the night at a roadside inn, crossed the river, dined off cold pie and roast mutton, and eventually arrived at the county town. To the lad the streets presented a spectacle of unwanted brilliancy, and he gaped with amazement. Turning into a side alley, wherein the mire necessitated both the most strenuous exertions on the Soraga's part, and the most vigorous castigation on the part of the driver and the baron, the conveyance eventually reached the gates of a courtyard, which, combined with a small fruit-garden containing various bushes, a couple of apple-trees in blossom, and a mean, dirty little shed, constituted the premises attached to an antiquated-looking villa. Here there lived a relative of the Chichikovs, a wizened old lady who went to market in person and dried her stockings at the samovar. On seeing the boy, she patted his cheek and expressed satisfaction at his physique, whereupon the fact became disclosed that here he was to abide for a while, for the purpose of attending a local school. After a night's rest his father prepared to betake himself homeward again. But no tears marked the parting between him and his son. He merely gave the lad a copper or two, and, a far more important thing, the following injunctions. "'See here, my boy, do your lessons well, do not idle or play the fool, and above all things see that you please your teachers. So long as you observe these rules you will make progress, and surpass your fellows, even if God shall have denied you brains.' and you should fail in your studies. Also do not consult overmuch with your comrades, for they will do you no good. But should you do so, then make friends with the richer of them, since one day they may be useful to you. Also never entertain or treat anyone, but see that everyone entertains and treats you. Lastly, and above all else, keep and save your every kopeck. To save money is the most important thing in life. Always a friend or a comrade may fail you, and be the first to desert you in a time of adversity. But never will a kopeck fail you, whatever may be your plight. Nothing in the world cannot be done, cannot be attained, without the aid of money. These injunctions given, the father embraced his son, and set forth on his return, 
and though the son never again beheld his parent, the latter's words and precepts sank deep into the little Chichikov's soul. The next day young Pavlushka made his first attendance at school. But no special aptitude in any branch of learning did he display. Rather, his distinguishing characteristics were diligence and neatness. On the other hand, he developed great intelligence as regards the practical aspect of life. In a trice he divined and comprehended how things ought to be worked, and, from that time forth, bore himself towards his schoolfellows in such a way that, though they frequently gave him presents, he not only never returned the compliment, but even, on occasions, pocketed the gifts for the mere purpose of selling them again. Also, boy though he was, he acquired the art of self-denial. Of the trifle which his father had given him, on parting, he spent not a kopeck, but, the same year, actually added to his little store by fashioning a bullfinch of wax, painting it, and selling the same at a handsome profit. Next, as time went on, he engaged in other speculations, in particular the time-scheme of buying up eatables, taking his seat in class beside boys who had plenty of pocket-money, and, as soon as such opulent individuals showed signs of failing attention, and, therefore, of growing appetite, tendering them from beneath a desk, a roll of pudding or a piece of gingerbread, and charging according to degree of appetite and size of portion. He also spent a couple of months in training a mouse, which he kept confined in a little wooden cage in his bedroom. At length, when the training had reached the point that, at the several words of command, the mouse would stand upon its hind legs, lie down, and get up again, he sold the creature for a respectable sum. Thus, in time, his gains attained the amount of five roubles whereupon he made himself a purse, and then started to fill a second receptacle of the kind. Still more studied was his attitude towards the authorities. No one could sit more quietly in his place on the bench than he. In the same connection it may be remarked that his teacher was a man who, above all things, loved peace and good behaviour, and simply could not abide clever witty boys, since he suspected them of laughing at him. Consequently, any lad who had once attracted the master's attention with a manifestation of intelligence needed but to shuffle in his place, or unintentionally to twitch an eyebrow, for the said master at once to burst into a rage, to turn the supposed offender out of the room, and to visit him with unmerciful punishment. "'Ah, my fine fellow,' he would say, "'I'll cure you of your impudence and want of respect. I know you through and through far better than you know yourself.' and will take good care that you have to go down upon your knees and curb your appetite. Whereupon the wretched lad would, for no cause of which he was aware, be forced to wear out his breeches on the floor and go hungry for days. Talents and gifts, the schoolmaster would declare, are so much rubbish. I respect only good behaviour, and shall award full marks to those who conduct themselves properly, even if they fail to learn a single letter of their alphabet, whereas to those in whom I may perceive a tendency to jocularity, I shall award nothing, even though they should outdo Solon himself. For the same reason he had no great love of the author Krylov, in that the letter says in one of his fables, In my opinion, the more one sings, the better one works. And often the pedagogue would relate how, in a former school of his, the silence had been such that a fly could be heard buzzing on the wing, and for the space of a whole year not a single pupil sneezed or coughed in class, and so complete was the absence of all sound that no one could have told that there was a soul in the place. Of this mentor young Chichikov speedily appraised the mentality, wherefore he fashioned his behaviour to correspond with it. Not an eyelid, 
not an eyebrow would he stir during school hours, howsoever many pinches he might receive from behind. And only when the bell rang would he run to anticipate his fellows in handing the master the three-cornered cap which that dignitary customarily sported, and then to be the first to leave the classroom, and contrive to meet the master not less than two or three times as the latter walked homeward, in order that, on each occasion, he might doff his cap. And the scheme proved entirely successful. Throughout the period of his attendance at school he was held in high favour, and, on leaving the establishment, received full marks for every subject, as well as a diploma and a book inscribed, in gilt letters, for exemplary diligence and the perfection of good conduct. By this time he had grown into a fairly good-looking youth of the age when the chin first calls for a razor, and at about the same period his father died, leaving behind him, as his estate, four waistcoats completely worn out, two ancient frock-coats, and a small sum of money. Apparently he had been skilled only in recommending the saving of kopecks, not in actually practising the art. Upon that Chichikov sold the old house and its little parcel of land for a thousand roubles, and removed, with his one serf and the serf's family, to the capital, where he set about organising a new establishment and entering the civil service. Simultaneously with his doing so, his old schoolmaster lost, through stupidity or otherwise, the establishment over which he had hitherto presided, and in which he had set so much store by silence and good behaviour. Grief drove him to drink, and when nothing was left even for that purpose, he retired, ill, helpless and starving, into a broken-down, cheerless hovel. But certain of his former pupils, the same clever, witty lads whom he had once been wont to accuse of impertinence and evil conduct generally, heard of his pitiable plight, and collected for him what money they could, even to the point of selling their own necessaries. Only Chichikov, when appealed to, pleaded inability, and compromised with the contribution of a single piatak. Footnote, silver five kopeck piece, and footnote, which his old schoolfellows straightway returned him, full in the face, and accompanied with a shout of, Oh, you skinflint! As for the poor schoolmaster, when he heard what his former pupils had done, he buried his face in his hands, and the tears gushed from his failing eyes as from those of a helpless infant. God has brought you but to weep over my deathbed, he murmured feebly, and added with a profound sigh on hearing of Chichikov's conduct, Ah, Pavlushka, how a human being may become changed! Once you were a good lad, and gave me no trouble— but now you're become proud indeed. Yet let it not be inferred from this that our hero's character had grown so blasé and hard, or his conscience so blunted, as to preclude his experiencing a particle of sympathy or compassion. As a matter of fact, he was capable both of the one and the other, and would have been glad to assist his old teacher, had no great sum been required, or had he not been called upon to touch the fund which had decided should remain intact. In other words, the father's injunction, guard and save every kopeck, had become a hard and fast rule of the sons. Yet the youth had no particular attachment to money for money's sake. He was not possessed with a true instinct for hoarding and niggardliness. Rather, before his eyes there floated ever a vision of life and its amenities and advantages, a vision of carriages and an elegantly furnished house and recherche dinners and it was in the hope that some day he might attain these things that he saved every kopeck and meanwhile stinted both himself and others whenever a rich man passed him by in a splendid droshki drawn by swift and handsomely caparisoned horses 
he would hold as though deep in thought, and say to himself, like a man awakening from a long sleep, that gentleman must have been a financier, he has so little hair on his brow. In short, everything connected with wealth and plenty produced upon him an ineffaceable impression. Even when he left school, he took no holiday, so strong in him was the desire to get to work and enter the civil service. Yet, for all the encomiums contained in his diploma, he had much ado to procure a nomination to a government department, and only after a long time was a minor post found for him, at a salary of thirty or forty roubles a year. Nevertheless, wretched though this appointment was, he determined, by strict attention to business, to overcome all obstacles and to win success. And, indeed, the self-denial, the patience, and the economy which he displayed were remarkable. From early morn until late at night he would, with indefatigable zeal of body and mind, remain immersed in a sordid task of copying official documents never going home, snatching what sleep he could on tables in the building, and dining with a watchman on duty. Yet, all the while, he contrived to remain clean and neat, to preserve a cheerful expression of countenance, and even to cultivate a certain elegance of movement. In passing, it may be remarked that his fellow chinovniks were a peculiarly plain, unsightly lot, some of them having faces like badly baked bread, swollen cheeks, receding chins, and cracked and blistered upper lips. Indeed, not a man of them was handsome. Also, their tone of voice always contained a note of sullenness, as though they had a mind to knock someone on the head, and by their frequent sacrifices to Bacchus they showed that even yet there remains in the Slavonic nature a certain element of paganism. Nay, the director's room itself they would invade while still licking their lips, and since their breath was not over-aromatic, the atmosphere of the room grew not over-pleasant. Naturally, among such an official staff, a man like Chichikov could not fail to attract attention and remark, since in everything, in cheerfulness of demeanour, in suavity of voice, and in complete neglect of the use of strong potions, he was the absolute antithesis of his companions. Yet his path was not an easy one to tread, for over him he had the misfortune to have placed in authority a chief clerk who was a graven image of elderly insensibility and inertia. Always the same, always unapproachable, this functionary could never in his life have smiled or asked civilly after an acquaintance's health. Nor had anyone ever seen him a whit different in the street or at his own home from what he was in the office, or showing the least interest in anything whatever, or getting drunk and relapsing into jollity in his cups, or indulging in that species of wild gaiety which, when intoxicated, even a burglar affects. No, not a particle of this was there in him nor, for that matter, was there in him a particle of anything at all, whether good or bad, which complete negativeness of character produced rather a strange effect. In the same way, his wizened, marble-like features reminded one of nothing in particular, so primly proportioned were they. Only the numerous pockmarks and dimples with which they were pitted placed him among the number of those over whose faces, to quote the popular saying, the devil has walked by night to grind peas. In short, it would seem that no human agency could have approached such a man and gained his goodwill. Yet Chichikov made the effort. As a first step, he took to consulting the other's convenience in all manner of insignificant trifles, to cleaning his pens carefully, and, when they had been prepared exactly to the chief clerk's liking, laying them ready at his elbow, to dusting and sweeping from his table all superfluous sand and tobacco-ash, to procuring a new mat for his inkstand, 
to looking for his hat, the meanest-looking hat that ever the world beheld, and having it ready for him at the exact moment when business came to an end, to brushing his back if it happened to become smeared with whitewash from a wall. Yet all this passed as unnoticed as though it had never been done. Finally, Chichikov sniffed into his superior's family and domestic life, and learned that he possessed a grown-up daughter on whose face also there had taken place a nocturnal, diabolical grinding of peas. Here was a quarter whence a fresh attack might be delivered. After ascertaining what church the daughter attended on Sundays, our hero took to contriving to meet her in a neat suit and a well-starched dicky, and soon the scheme began to work. The surly chief clerk wavered for a while, then ended by inviting Chichikov to tea. Nor could any man in the office have told you how it came about that before long Chichikov had removed to the chief clerk's house and become a person necessary, indeed indispensable to the household. Seeing that he bought the flour and the sugar, treated the daughter as his betrothed, called the chief clerk Papenka, and occasionally kissed Papenka's hand. In fact, every one at the office supposed that, at the end of February, that is, before the beginning of Lent, there would take place a wedding. Nay, the surly father even began to agitate with the authorities on Chichikov's behalf, and so enabled our hero, on a vacancy occurring, to attain the stool of a chief clerk. Apparently this marked the consummation of Chichikov's relations with his host, for he hastened stealthily to pack his trunk, and, the next day, figured in a fresh lodging. Also he ceased to call the chief clerk Popenka, or to kiss his hand, and the matter of the wedding came to as abrupt a termination as though it had never been mooted. Yet also he never failed to press his late host's hand, whenever he met him, and to invite him to tea, while, on the other hand, for all his immobility and dry indifference, the chief clerk never failed to shake his head with a muttered, "'Ah, my fine fellow, you've grown too proud! You've grown too proud!' The foregoing constituted the most difficult step that our hero had to negotiate. Thereafter things came with greater ease and swifter success." Everywhere he attracted notice, for he developed within himself everything necessary for this world, namely charm of manner and bearing, and great diligence in business matters. Armed with these resources, he next obtained promotion to what is known as a fat post, and used it to the best advantage, and even though at that period strict inquiry had begun to be made into the whole subject of bribes, such inquiry failed to alarm him. Nay, he actually turned it to account, and thereby manifested the Russian resourcefulness, which never fails to attain its zenith. The foregoing constituted the most difficult step that our hero had to negotiate. Thereafter things came with greater ease and swifter success. Everywhere he attracted notice, for he developed within himself everything necessary for his world, namely, charm of manner and bearing, and great diligence in business matters. Armed with these resources, he next obtained promotion to what is known as a fat post, and used it to the best advantage, and even though, at that period, strict inquiry had begun to be made into the whole subject of bribes, such inquiry failed to alarm him. Nay, he actually turned it to account, and thereby manifested the Russian resourcefulness, which never fails to attain its zenith, where extortion is concerned. His method of working was the following. As soon as a petitioner or a suitor put his hand into his pocket, to extract thence the necessary letters of recommendation for signature, Chichikov would smilingly exclaim, as he detained his interlocutor's hand, "'No, no, surely you do not think that I—' "'But no, no, it is our duty, it is our obligation, 
and we do not require rewards for doing our work properly. So far as your matter is concerned, you may rest easy. Everything shall be carried through to-morrow. But may I have your address? There is no need to trouble yourself, seeing that the documents can easily be brought to you at your residence. Upon which the delighted suitor would return home in raptures, thinking— here, at long last, is the sort of man so badly needed. A man of that kind is a jewel beyond price. Yet for a day, for two days, nay, even for three, the suitor would wait in vain, so far as any messengers with documents were concerned. Then he would repair to the office, to find that his business had not so much as been entered upon. Lastly, he would confront the jewel beyond price. Oh, pardon me, pardon me! Chichikov would exclaim in the politest of tones as he seized and grasped the visitor's hands. The truth is that we have such a quantity of business on hand. But the matter shall be put through to-morrow, and in the meanwhile I am most sorry about it. And with this would go the most fascinating of gestures. Yet neither on the morrow, nor on the day following, nor on the third, would documents arrive at the suitor's abode. Upon that he would take thought as to whether something more ought not to have been done. And, sure enough, on his making inquiry, he would be informed that something will have to be given to the copyists. Well, there can be no harm in that, he would reply. As a matter of fact, I have ready a chadvertak or two. Footnote. A silver quarter rouble. End footnote. Oh, no, no, the answer would come. Not a chadvertak per copyist, but a rouble is the fee. What? A rouble per copyist? Certainly. What is there to grumble at in that? Of the money, the copyists will receive a chadvartak apiece, and the rest will go to the government. Upon that, the disillusioned suitor would fly out upon the new order of things brought about by the inquiry into illicit fees, and curse both the chinovsticks and their uppish, insolent behaviour. Once upon a time, would the suitor lament, one did know what to do. Once one had tipped the director a banknote, one's affair was, so to speak, in the hat, but now one has to pay a rouble per copyist after waiting a week, because otherwise it was impossible to guess how the wind might set. The devil fly away with all disinterested and trustworthy chinovniks. And certainly the aggrieved suitor had reason to grumble, seeing that, now that bribe-takers had ceased to exist, and directors had uniformly become men of honour and integrity, secretaries and clerks ought not with impunity to have continued their thievish ways. In time there opened out to Chichikov a still wider field, for a commission was appointed to supervise the erection of a government building, and, on his being nominated to that body, he proved himself one of its most active members. The commission got to work without delay, but for a space of six years had some trouble with the building in question. Either the climate hindered operations, or the materials used were of the kind which prevents official edifices from ever rising higher than the basement. But meanwhile, other quarters of the town saw arise, for each member of the commission, a handsome house of the non-official style of architecture. Clearly, the foundation afforded by the soil of those parts was better than that where the government building was still engaged in hanging fire. Likewise, the members of the commission began to look exceedingly prosperous, and to blossom out into family life. And, for the first time in his existence, even Chichikov also departed from the iron laws of his self-imposed restraint and inexorable self-denial, and so far mitigated his heretofore asceticism as to show himself a man not averse to those amenities which, during his youth, he had been capable of renouncing. That is to say, 
certain superfluities began to make their appearance in his establishment. He engaged a good cook, took to wearing linen shirts, bought for himself cloth of a pattern worn by no one else in the province, figured in checks shot with the brightest of reds and browns, fitted himself out with two splendid horses, which he drove with a single pair of reins, added to a ring attachment for the trace-horse, developed a habit of washing with a sponge dipped in eau de cologne, and invested in soaps of the most expensive quality, in order to communicate to his skin a more elegant polish. End of Part 1 Chapter 11 Section 1